listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers from faith leaders to academics to artists to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Cindy Khan, art curator and documentary film producer, as well as founder and president of Launch Projects, a consulting firm dedicated to leveraging the power of the arts to reframe existing challenges and shape extraordinary futures. Cindy, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for including me, Rabbi Neil. This is so exciting to be here. It's great having you here. Let's start with this idea of being a a firm believer in leveraging the power of the arts to help shape a better future for all. Let's start with, why do you believe that? Yeah, exactly. Why do I believe that? Well, I think that from a fairly young age, I was drawn to the arts. I think the arts ask questions that we often don't ask. They reframe opportunities for how we solve problems. And artists are always at that sort of cutting edge of society, of how we think about ourselves and how we think about our politics and our world and are usually the ones that are the most outspoken and also the ones that are most impacted immediately as our world changes. And so I became an art curator early on in my career and an art dealer and ran museums and galleries. And about 12 years ago, I realized that the idea of showing and selling art wasn't enough for me. And it didn't get to the heart of why I loved art so much. And I realized I wanted to dedicate myself to helping leverage the arts and bring artists into dialogues where the arts aren't normally seen or heard so that people can rethink the assumptions they make and have that artistic creative modality in a way that it it changes the way that we talk, communicate, and it brings people to a place of empathy immediately Mm -hmm. when you strip away the words and you just get straight to the emotion that art can elicit in any form, whether it's visual art, music, film, poetry, dance. When when you said that artists are often most affected by the changes in our society, what did you mean by that? In what ways? I think oftentimes artists notice more. They are such... Um, like weather vanes for the world around us. Often they're also most impacted because they often don't have the money. They're the ones that are in the, the echelons of society that often don't have a voice. And the arts have always been an opportunity to give voice to those who don't have one. So you think about you know, muralism movements and graffiti art and the, the history of blues and that mm. sort of thing. These are, these are groups in society that are often outsiders and they have the opportunity to say what's often, and, and think about fascist regimes and regimes where people can't give voice. Artists are able to be subversive and to give voice to things that perhaps others would not be able to, or perhaps haven't even seen or thought of yet. Um, also in terms of solutions, you know, we, we think in certain linear ways, we're taught to do things a certain way. And what I've found throughout my career is artists are disruptive in a positive way. And they, they help shake up our system and shake up our assumptions. So sometimes we often don't even know the right questions to get to the right answers. And artists create those questions for us to really rethink 
who we are, what we're doing, how we're solving problems, how we're interacting together. That's an extraordinary answer. I've never considered art in that way. So that puts the artist sort of one foot in society and one foot outside society, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. Sort of in, in shaping, but critiquing, but still needing to be at some point anchored within our society. Yeah, there's this great uh, piece that Bruce Nauman did, who I ironically saw two days ago at lunch, and I'm still sort of starstruck by this contemporary artist who is internationally famous and happens to live in Galisteo. But he said in his piece, it's something along the lines of the artist is the revealer of mystic truths. And I, I just love that. You know, the, the artist is one foot in and one foot out of everything that we do assume. And when I was in the art world and selling art and curating art, I found that it was putting art within a much more prescriptive context. Right. And I wanted to be in a position to curate artists and still work with artists in a way that freed them to think about what they do and how they do it in a context that made no sense in terms of the sort of the trajectory of our traditional art world. I, I, I so appreciate this. And, and, and I know that you're carrying many hats, as it were. You know, you're not just um, focused in the art world. You're also working, as I mentioned, you're working on a documentary. Mm -hmm. And this documentary is about the state of mental health in this country. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Mental health services, as far as I know, were gutted in this country in the 1980s in particular. And I think we're still feeling the effects of that on a national level, as well as on a local level and in other cuts. What, what are you seeing in terms of mental health today? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting. Um, first of all, you know, this is my first foray into film. And what an extraordinary way to tell a story. You know, I'm so used to visual arts and and conceptual art and even poetry, but this, the filmmaking is, is such a beautiful art form to be able to tell a story. And what we're looking at is the whole purpose of this documentary is, of course, to talk about the history of mental health. How did we get to this crisis? How did we get to a place where one in four adults is on some sort of an antidepressant or you know, a, a, a medicine for mental health? How is it that there's so many mass shootings and addictions and depression and how can we find a way out? And so the intention of this documentary is to provide hope. And so what we have is absolutely looked at the history of mental health. How do we get to the place we are? And without sort of going into the entire history of mental health, sure. you know, you're looking at, you know, JFK had a sister who had a botched lobotomy. Right. They didn't know how to handle having a sibling who had a mental illness. And so he really started to believe in nationalizing mental health care opening up, you know, now what we call insane asylums, but right. he was trying to create centers to help people. And you know, the funding never really went through at the level he was hope hoping for, you know, because of his assassination and, you know, changes in, in government structure. And so then in the 80s, what you're referring to, Ronald Reagan was looking at, I mean, arguably like a ton of money going into what we're, we think of as like the one flew over the cuckoo's nest asylum. Sure, so sure. were people housed and being taken care of? Yes. Was it fair and kind and equitable? Probably not. Right. And so he just closed all the asylums and everyone went on the street and that was sort of the beginning of our homelessness population. And so we're looking at then from that point, then we get to Big Pharma, 
Mm-hmm. We get to the creation of the DSM, which is a diagnostic book that people consider the Bible, right. but is also created by Big Pharma to diagnose and to give people a prescription drug for any issue you may face. And so if I'm having a hard time, I may go to my primary care physician and he or she is going to prescribe me a drug based on something he or she reads in the DSM. And that is a construct. And so some of it is legitimate. Some of it is absolutely needed. I'm not anti, you know, prescription drugs whatsoever. But I think we've come to a place in our society where we're so afraid of holding pain. We're so afraid of seeing others in pain. Or we're so exhausted that if our children are hyperactive, if our students are hyperactive, We'd rather just drug them right. than get them out to play or give them, you know, other solutions. And so this documentary is really looking at how do we come back together as a collective society in a way that we can care for the people that need to be cared for and reframe what mental illness is. Because I think one of the biggest takeaways that we're seeing in this film and in all the research we've been doing is that the brain is so plastic. It is so flexible and resilient that no matter what you've been through, there are ways that you can heal. And those don't have to be through drugs. And so a lot of it is really addressing the neuroplasticity Hmm. of our minds. And if we rethink the way that we address and diagnose and treat mental illnesses, and not even mental illnesses, but depression, PTSD, we are only, we've been on one very narrow path for decades which is, you know, doing the drugs, having a diagnosis, getting people in mental institutions, incarcerating people who are outliers mentally. And we're just going to posit a new idea that most people who are diagnosed with some sort of depression, PTSD, ADHD, can probably be healed in ways that they will be completely healed for the rest of their life. We just don't have the time, the space, and we're not putting the money into I'm finding those solutions. And I guess I just want to to almost reiterate when you were saying that you're not anti-medication. No, I mean, no, I mean because I, yeah. of course, there are some times when, when a person is in so much crisis, whether it's an addiction or a particular form of depression, that, that actually um, scientifically followed, you know, researched medication can help. But you're saying that there isn't necessarily the the ends exactly there is a portion of society that needs to be on medication that it is appropriate it is safe it is the right thing there are also a huge portion that may be going through an episode may be depressed maybe have lost a loved one and need to be on antidepressants absolutely it's just that seems to be the only solution and that is for most people who could use a short dose of antidepressants and then integrative therapy and support and community resilience models, they don't have that. And so they end up on antidepressants for the rest of their lives. And if you look at all of the evidence of research of SSRIs, antidepressants, Mm -hmm. over a long period of time, they don't work. They work great for short periods of time. That's what they're meant for. And so that's what we're looking at. But absolutely, like pharmaceuticals are great for specific needs for specific people. And there's some people that absolutely need to be on medication. That's completely true. But it's just, what else can we do 
besides having a society where one in four adults is is on some sort of a medication. So before we take a break, you mentioned about us all coming together as a society to to protect those who need support. And and I look at American society in particular, which is more and more divided okay. in particular. And, and when you said that, my initial response was skepticism. My initial mental response was skepticism. Like this country can't come together over some basic things like um, children being slaughtered in schools. So if you can't do that, how can you help other people? But I guess, you know, it's important to go beyond the skepticism. So so before we take a break, how can what what do we need to change in ourselves, in our institutions? What do we need to change in our society to address this current mental health crisis? I think you mentioned some of it. If you were to say, look, OK, it's easy to be skeptical, but here's what needs to happen. So let's make it happen. What are some of the things that you think need to happen, need right. to change? And, uh, you know, th there is no simple answer. And you're sure. right. Our world is so polarized. It's so divided. I think one of the interesting things is that mental health is starting to cross so many different barriers and boundaries that no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, no matter what you look like, what your ethnicity is, what your socioeconomic range is, everybody knows somebody that has been affected by mental illness. Everyone has been depressed. Everyone has had been in crisis, especially with COVID. Right. So I think we're beginning to see a world where we know we can't keep going the way we're going. And so cracking open those dialogues, just beginning to think about how to change, thinking about how to raise our children in a way that they start thinking differently. We, we come up, we have found a lot of people around the country and around the world that are dedicated to building community. And it just starts with small community, right. with the building, with bridging divides. And again, like this all is very long-term Pollyanna how do we get there? But I do think from everything we've been reading and seeing, we have no choice. And I think across all spectrums, people are starting to realize we need to think about how we interact with each other in a new way. And so uh, not to have too many spoilers for the documentary because sure, everyone has to watch sure, it. Sure. Um, but we, we have a lot of very clear answers and people that we're highlighting who are working really hard and having a lot of success in changing how people are interacting with each other without any huge cost or anything like that. It's just these community resilience models, bringing our communities back together. I really appreciate that answer. I'm really excited to see this documentary. We need to take a pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Cindy Kahn, art curator, documentary film producer, as well as founder and president of Launch Project. And we'll be back after this break.
You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Cindy Kahn, art curator, documentary film producer and founder and president of Launch Project. Before the break, we were talking about art and the role of the artist and we were talking about mental health in this country. Um, you recently curated an exhibition on climate change. And I wonder if you could share a little about that as well. I would love to. Yeah, it was really exciting. So I am a governing board member of an organization called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. That organization was founded by Oppenheimer and Einstein in 1945 at the advent of the nuclear bomb. And so the atomic bomb went off and they realized that we are creating man-made existential threats that we can't contain. And so over the past 75, 76 years, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, it started out as an actual journal. They sent it out to scientists, to politicians, to people to help raise awareness of what we're creating. Fast forward 76 years, it is now an online publication. It's a website. And that we now focus on three major issues, nuclear weapons, climate change, and disruptive technologies, which is sort of a catch-all for AI and, you know, what even, you know, bio-warfare, bio-weaponry. Um, and I joined the board almost four years ago now. I'm definitely an outlier. When I tell my friends that I'm on the board of the Bulletin Atomic Scientists, I get that, like, blank stare, like, what? That makes no sense at all. And that's, why, that's, why does that make no sense? I think because having an art curator in an organization that's really associated with scientists and policy and Oppenheimer and Einstein, Governor Jerry Brown is the executive chair of our board. And so for me to join this board was, you know, it was a thrill. And they invited me because they understood the need for arts and that storytelling to reach different audiences in what the story in, in these issues that everyone needs to face and everyone needs to think about. Ironically, when I joined the board, nuclear weapons didn't seem like that much of an existential threat. And so one of our biggest challenges was making sure people realized they still were. Right. And now, you know, thanks to our current war, <laughs> everyone really recognizes um, how close we are to a potential nuclear war. So through that relationship, I was invited to curate an exhibition on climate change. It started at a, a beautiful uh, non-commercial gallery called Weinberg Newton in Chicago. They curate shows in partnership with other organizations to raise awareness of major issues. And so they asked me to curate the show. And so I initially had this idea of having two sides of the exhibition. One was going to be this completely dystopian, frightening, worst-case scenario, what happens if we don't make change right now, and the other side was going to be utopian. Like if we change now, if we, you know, pass this legislation, you know, what's going to happen and how beautiful the world could look. And as I started working with artists and looking at what I believed and reading more about sort of where we stand, I started choosing pieces that incorporated both in every artwork. So the main piece in the exhibition, the sort of signature piece is Reagan Rosberg's installation monument and it is moss and plastic ah. and orchids and so moss is one of the most ancient um you know materials that's ever been on earth and these you know man-made plastics and then orchids have survived through the last through the dinosaur age and she creates this scent aroma that you is uh put throughout the gallery of rain and so every single piece in the exhibition has both so much hope 
and so much despair embedded in each piece. And each piece is actually beautiful because I do still believe the power of the arts is beauty. And so I have seen many times in my career that often activist, in quotes, art is ugly, it's confrontational. Mm -hmm. And I still am a sort of a purist in that I want art to be beautiful as much as it is frightening and dangerous and challenging. And so this show, I think it surprises people how beautiful it is to walk through and to see because each of the artists makes these beautiful objects that stand alone as art, but then just make such a powerful statement about where we stand. And the other piece of the show that was so fun to put together was I was able to interview scientists, politicians, leaders in climate change, even one meteorologist who's a really outspoken meteorologist out of Florida. And so I have these snippets of people talking, experts talking about where we stand, what they're optimistic about, what they most fear. So you really get a lot of knowledge and understanding. And then another piece of the original exhibition also had interactive uh, activities. You could write a letter to your senator congressman. And so it was sort of about, I think, one of the biggest challenges with, with climate change and all of these sort of existential threats is we all feel too small to make a difference. And if everyone feels too small to make a difference, nobody makes a difference. And so right. it's like, what are these small, tangible steps? Even with mental health, like what we were talking about before. Right. Like we kind of throw up our hands and say we can't recreate a system. But if if we believe that, we won't. So I believe in sort of, I am such a cautious optimist that I feel like if we don't believe we can make change, we won't. Right. So I'd rather try and fail than not do it. And so that was sort of the, this, uh, the climate change exhibition is, is a call for beauty and it's a call for hope and then gives people really tangible ways that they can help change the world. And I, I suspect there's another way of connecting sort of environment and mental health in terms of climate grief. Exactly. Which so many people are, are openly talking about experiencing, particularly young people. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little about that, about the connection between in, in climate crisis, yeah. catastrophe potentially, and mental health, particularly in relation to climate grief? You know, it's interesting. When, when we started working on the documentary on mental health, I really wanted to embed climate trauma and climate grief in it. And it's just too much. Like, you know, we just, right. to make a good movie, apparently you have to narrow your focus. But I think it's the next one I'll make. Okay. <laughs> but it really, when you think about climate insecurity... You think about people who don't know if their cities are going to be flooded, if their water is going to be clean. You look at these massive heat waves, these massive fires. People feel like they have no control. It hits those most in need the the fastest, the hardest. And how can everyone not be afraid of where we stand, where we are? So I think everyone is, is living in sort of this traumatized space right now, both covid you know, well, all COVID wars, you know, how we treat each other. And then tr- climate just compiles upon that. And we all have this low level of tension. Will we have water to drink? Will my, even if it's, even for those who have the most money, right? I mean, th- their palaces are no less immune to flooding and to fires. And then at the, you know, the lowest level, economic level of society, I mean, entire cities are being decimated right now. Right. And, you know, some people still are saying, you know, climate change isn't real, which is just amazing to me. So it's um, it, it's extraordinary to me to to hear you connect these two. I think particularly with the with, with, with this connection of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, 
because as you mentioned being a board member and they have the clock don't they the doomsday the doomsday, the yes. doomsday clock i'm flying out to chicago in 2 weeks to watch the scientist debate the setting of the doomsday clock we sit in a room for 2 days and the governing board gets to just witness the science and security board we have different groups that present on each different topic nuclear weapons climate change disruptive technology and from there they decide where the clock is going to be set and it is one of the most frightening mm. and empowering and amazing experiences i've ever had to witness the setting of the doom and the doomsday clock is a metaphor people say well, sure. what is this thing and an artist martel langsdorf started it in i think it was 1948 because she said you know it's all well and good that you guys are have your data you have your words but until people have a metaphor until they have something bigger that's so yeah frightening i mean people they the doomsday clock gets criticized for being like a scary thing but that's the point. It's like, yeah. wake up. We're close to midnight. And so that sort of follows on the artist thread. An artist created the Doomsday Clock. And now each year, the scientists set it. And then we also have artists um, who create different iterations and versions. And in the exhibition, Human Nature, that I curated, um, that I meant, didn't mention, is now at the University of Chicago uh, Harris School of Public Policy. So it moved to University of Chicago. Um, I have one artificial intelligence group called Obvious, and they make AI art. They're unbelievable, absolutely brilliant artists. And they created an AI version of the Doomsday Clock with a Russian photographer, Stas Bartnikas, who flies all over the world and photographs the most remote regions and how climate is changing in those regions. I, I, until we spoke, I'd never considered the Doomsday Clock as a piece of art. But now, you, as soon as you say it, oh, of course it is. Yeah. You know, I have an astrophysics degree and I read the science papers. And when, when you try to tell people, you know, we, there's, there's definitely been that experience from um, from most of climate scientists who are being told, don't alarm people, because if you alarm people too right. much, then they're going to shut down. So got a, a minute left. You know what? You said that you were a cautious optimist, I think you yeah. said. What does that mean for you as we as we move into this realm of art and mental health and, and doomsday and fear? Right. What does it mean to be a cautious optimist today? Well, I think it's, it's acknowledging how hard all the problems are. Our world is hard. Our lives are hard. Being human is hard. Mm. If we recognize that and talk to each other about that and realize that I am struggling as much as you are, as much as somebody else is, I think we have to start hoping and living the hope that we have, because unless we all become more hopeful, we are doomed. And so I would say I'm a cautious optimist because I recognize how hard all these challenges are. But if I don't dedicate my life to trying, then I'm just part of the problem. And I love the idea of, of being able to say, I am suffering and, you know, giving space for that, for us all to be able to say, it's okay to to be struggling right now yeah it's healthy to be struggling if you weren't struggling maybe you're not paying attention enough you're probably just drugged <laughs> <laughs> okay or, or or not caring enough yeah, yeah. Or, or checked out too isolated checked you're out. dissociating if you're not right. worried <laughs> and so i i really appreciate you sharing that because you know i come from a rabbinic role a community builder and, and you yeah. know i see it as so essential for us to be able to openly share our difficulties and to work together so i really i really appreciate you bringing this this evening and i think spirituality is key no matter what you believe in like that believing in anything greater than yourself is part of the solution 
thank you so much for coming in this evening. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I hope that you'll be able to come back again and, and share more about, about this. I would love to. Thank you so much. So thank you to Cindy Khan, art curator and documentary film producer and founder and president of Launch Projects. Really, I genuinely hope that you'll come back again. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.